Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I don't know what to say, really. Three minutes till the biggest battle of our professional lives. All comes down to today. Either we heal as a team or we're going to crumble. Inch by inch, play by play, till we're finished. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at The Times. Last week on the podcast, we had a conversation with Dick Weiss, an old friend from his days as an editor and writing coach at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Dick talked about a project he's working on called Before Ferguson, Beyond Ferguson. And while we had Dick in town, we also wanted to pick his brain for another podcast. So today's topic, coaching writers. All right, so talk a little bit about your favorite experiences with reporters and just reporters in general, how much you love them. Well, maybe we should talk about like, <laughs> for, for people who come into this business a little later than us and writing coaches Which have gone away. Newsrooms used to have them. There was this, this great, like, um, you know, person they sitting the in the gurus. room, the guru, yeah, and right. you would go over there uh, and they'd share their yeah. wisdom. And I like to think of myself as an eminence. Oh, yes. Yeah. The um, eminent, Dick right. Weiss. Yeah. But uh, uh, well, let me back up just a little bit and, and kind of tell you how I ended up being a writing coach because it, it's rather strange in that, A, I did not go to journalism school. So I was not trained as a journalist. And I was lucky enough uh, going back to uh, when you two were just a twinkle in your parents' eyes. Uh, uh, 1973, I managed to get a job at the St. Louis uh, or at the Kansas City Star, because they needed somebody to start right away, that, and they were hiring people at that point when the country was coming out of a recession, and I got paid a hundred and fifty dollars a week, and I didn't know a thing about really how to write a story, except that um, you know my daddy was a, a television news producer, so they thought there might be something in the bloodlines. I mean, that's how desperate they were. Now you can't get a job anymore um, without having gone, gotten some training and been an intern and, you know, paid your dues. I started the Kansas City Star, major metro market. And so they, the, one of my first stories was, uh, there's a shooting down the street. Dick, go, go cover it. And uh, so I had, uh, I'm all excited. It's going to be like my first byline. And I, I go out there and I ask all the questions that I had learned by watching cop shows. And uh, they, of course, they didn't, uh, it didn't occur to me that maybe I should get the first name of the victim or what hospital the victim was sent to. And so I get back and realize I, I probably don't have enough material, nor do I know how to write it. So I call up to the morgue 
that's what we call used to call what the library yeah the library and i say please send me down the last 10 stories that have been done on shootings and i look at the story and i say oh yes i have not gotten the stuff that i need so i'm scrambling and i'm writing it and so on you were a great hire and And then and and then the the editor uh, kansas city star i'm not sure this is true maybe it's true here still at the at the tampa bay times the editors were paternalistic. They took they took care of you. They nurtured you. I, I won't. You don't need to um, a- answer that question. It's rhetorical, but um, <laughs> nobody's got time for that anymore. <laughs> you know, they helped me figure it out, and they were very patient with me. And uh, so uh, then I, you know, ended up at the Post Dispatch, and you know, I, I had no idea how to write anything, but I was. Uh, if I can brag on myself, I was kind of clever, and they would put me on the do the funny stories, do the funny stories, and which, and I would reinvent the wheel every time, because and I'd sit there staring at my typewriter, not knowing how to write a story. Well, eventually, I began to study the story forms, and let's just say they're probably they're limited. They're they're ten. Okay, you know, there's the news analysis piece, and there's the the hard news, and then there's the anecdotal lead, and I didn't get to narrative till I was like 40 years old, and but being self-taught, uh, I think made me uh, uh, help make me a better coach in the sense that I could work with people who were totally clueless and understand why they didn't get something and explain it to them in a way that wasn't uh, so classical or, 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 or have this expectation that um, you should know this stuff and, and get impatient with them. And so that's, you know, and, and then getting to your question, which I do remember even though I'm rather old now, uh, what are my favorite experiences? Well, I used to be the kind of guy uh, I got a reputation where you could uh, you could turn in a, a messy story and I would fix it. And my editors loved the fact that I could just fix a story. Give it to Dick. You remember that cereal uh, commercial? Give it to Joey, the cereal. Give it to Joey. He'll eat anything. Dick. Mikey, Mikey. Mikey, Mikey. Hey, Mikey. Yes. Hey, Mikey. Yeah, okay, we're aging ourselves. Probably yeah. most of our listeners cannot relate to that cultural moment, but it was a big thing. And I could fix it. And, of course, that wasn't doing those reporters any good, really. And uh, uh, and nor and at some point, I got a reputation like if you wanted to own your story, uh, which just about every journalist wants to do, oh, don't please don't send my story to Dick. He'll wisecise it. I think that was a phrase people used. So that was not a good reputation to have. And uh, eventually... I got to a place where I, I was beginning to learn how to teach writers stuff. And then they began to like coming to me. And the, the big thing, I think, was that I'll, reporters have the experience when they take an idea to an editor. The editor, often the first question an editor will ask is, well, how long do you need? And then they're thinking, well, how much is it going to cost? And they're asking all these questions that have nothing to do with the story, the essence of the story, or why, why the reporter is excited about the story. And so the question you should really ask is, why are you excited about the story? And the next thing that a lot of editors forget is when an editor comes to you with an idea, it's much better to help them make it 
bigger than smaller. Bigger doesn't necessarily mean more time, but more ambitious. And that's where you guys, Lane and Maria, you are so good at making stories bigger, more important. And to help a reporter think through that is great. And then you also learn that as an editor, don't be the expert. Don't tell people what to do. Ask them questions and draw them out because they're closer to the idea than, than you are. And so one guy, I almost got fired for this story. One guy comes to me with a story about uh, the X Prize. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was about 15 years ago. They're still doing these competitions. The first person who could uh, send a uh, private spacecraft into space, break, you know, zero, get to zero gravity and bring it down safely to a landing would get $10 million. And this whole plan was hatched in St. Louis. And, and every year the editor would uh, ask for what, are, what projects should we do uh, in um, this year? Does this, do you have this an annual thing where everybody submits their ideas to the top editor and the top editor helps you know, figure out what they, how they want to allocate the resources. We have like annual festivals, like the Gasparilla thing that every year it's kind of like, what are we going to do for that? Yeah. you got to cover yeah. it again and again. So, like your tuba thing, I remember you talking yes, about, Yes, right? the tuba festival. Yeah. Um, I almost got fired for that one too. And, uh, but, uh, so we thought this was a great idea. Uh, Eli uh, Kentish is his name. I'll never forget his name. It's a great name. And uh, we submitted it and the editor turned it down. Couldn't believe it just turned it down flat. And, and I said uh, to my boss, Kathy, I said, do you mind if I take another crack at it? And so I created a whole PowerPoint presentation with, uh, uh, I made the rockets, I spent hours on this, I made the rockets lift off, uh, I animated them. I learned how to do an, an, kind of an animation where the rocket would lift off and it was it was the rocket was taking the uh, essentially the, the post dispatch to fame and fortune, and um, and so I did that presentation, and I, they finally sort of grudgingly let me do it. I thought they were grudgingly letting me do it, but actually I got ahead of myself, and I started getting the photographers all riled up and interested in it. And uh, my editor called me, and I said, "We didn't give you permission to do that." And and uh, so, uh, but by this time, you know, it was too far gone for her to pull it back. So he, Eli went out and reported the story, and um, it, of course it took longer than we said it would, and so on and so forth. But it it, we, it was a five part series, and it won a, a a prize, a space prize, for which Eli got a thousand dollars in cash, and he bought me a beer. <laughs> That's about right. I want to go back to that point about like, so I think the best writing coaches and, and probably the best editors I've ever worked with, yeah, you know, you, you head their way and you're thinking that you're looking for answers and instead they ask you questions. And yes. it's a really good technique for those of you who are editors or want to be editors that don't don't jump right away. Just sort of try to understand whatever it is, whatever the story idea is, whatever the problem is. And um, and and then and then having people talk through what challenge they've got going on, it really helps them, but it helps you, right? Yeah, and that's I mean, uh, a lot of the your listeners may be uh, line editors who have a lot of the day to day stuff, and and they may not be always be able to do a project or, or coach somebody through a project, but it, just 
think about when you get a lead that comes in and it's really problematic and the, your first uh, instinct is to like touch the keyboard and fix it and, and, and do whatever it is you do. And I tell people to stop, read that paragraph and figure out in your own mind, what is that reporter trying to say? And usually you can figure it out if you pause for a moment, because a lot of times you just make up your mind what the, sto what the story is, just because you're an editor and you're smart, you know. And you, you, you figure that out. And then what I have done, what I've learned to do is also instead, even when I've figured out what that reporter is trying to say, I still don't fix it. I might, on my separate keyboard or separate screen, actually rewrite the lead so that I can understand it. But I will not put that lead in there. I'll go to the reporter and I will talk um, to the person and say, Am I, if, if I'm understanding this correctly, what this story is about is A, B, and C. And they will either agree or disagree. And, uh, but if I've, I've come pretty close, I will ask questions that may lead that reporter toward the paragraph that I have written quietly, secretly. But what often happens is that... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This dialectic, use an SAT word, ACT word, this dialectic, this clash uh, of ideas between the reporter and the editor, you come up with something better. Yeah, you would have started. And I always, I mean, Maria does this in spades, but I've always asked other editors, like, please just read it first without a pen. Mm -hmm. Don't don't start editing when you're in my copy the very first time, because sometimes the reporter has the point or the net graph or the answer, and it's buried way down in the yeah. top, you know, below the anecdotal lead or whatever. So I love editors. They'll just read it first as a reader and yeah. then come back in and start Elaine. fixing you have to recognize that it is so hard for editors not to touch the keyboard. It is so hard when they see just one little flaw to start fixing. It is So just give them a little pat on the back when they don't do that and they read it all the way through. And you, I'm sure you came to this too, Deck, but I mean like over the years I felt like uh, the longer I go, the the more I believe that editing is not what I do with my hands, right? right? No, right. seriously, yes. you know, that you, you, get, you get away from the keyboard and it really is a conversation and it's like I feel like most of my heavy lifting as an editor, like say with Lane, is in our conversations, is in our, you know, what do you have and how are we going to frame it and where are we going with it? When we get to the point that there's actually copy on a, on a screen, it's us polishing it. It's us sort of trying to smooth it out or, you know, this, you, you know, take another stab at this because I think you can make it better or here's where I got tripped up. Um, but then... Really, like if you're spending all your time hacking away, yeah. you're not you're not really get right. helping. To and uh, you know, Walt Harrington had a funny line. Uh, he had a there some writers actually appreciate you just taking their story over and fixing it for them. And uh, he had a, a a great relationship with a guy who would introduce Walt and say, "This is Walt Harrington. He wrote some of my best stories." <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want to be that guy. I don't think Walt would either. Generally speaking, because especially with the younger writers. 
you want to get have them get better. And I am old enough now to have get, seen what has happened. I mean, I feel like a third grade teacher who's uh, a 25 year old comes back to them and in a classroom and said, you know, I'm, you know, a vice president for this or that. And, you know, and she's remembering that that person didn't know which end was up in, in third grade. And this is, I've seen this happen, that this works, this, this just asking questions and just being uh, a, a, a good uh, a mentor rather than a fixer um, is the way to go. I think um, newsrooms today, too, like we've gotten away from a traditional writing coach in a corner, but I feel like everybody turns to everybody else who's still here. <laughs> like, you know, you you go find somebody, it could be a reporter helping another reporter. Um, you know, you, you, you find, you kind of make your own writing coaches, really, in those relationships. That's ab- absolutely true. And, and, and there's a whole lot. I mean, you can be... Uh, not likely to happen much anymore. You could be named writing coach, but every reporter uh, has a writing coach in the newsroom, and it is not necessarily the writing coach. It's the person at the next desk. It might not be the person that they report to as an editor. It might be a different editor. Uh, Nobody should get in the way of that. The one thing that I always uh, tell people, um, just in terms of, you know, from the reporter's point of view, is read before you turn it in, read it out loud. You'll see, it will either sound conversational or comfortable, or it won't. Those and you'll catch a lot of typos that way as well. Share it with somebody, uh, what we call a candid friend, somebody who likes you and wants to see you succeed, which is probably your spouse, uh, and, and or you hope it's your spouse uh, in many cases, and um, and sleep on it. Um, you think you're done, hopefully, you know, it's not necessarily a deadline uh, thing that day, go home, sleep on it, and come back and look at it fresh, and it'll, it'll be amazing what you can catch. The polishing is, what, 50% of the, uh, the quality of the story comes in the last 5% of your time, I think. That's all great advice. If you, and if you've been listening to this podcast for a year and you're not reading out loud, then we are really disappointed <laughs> in you, okay? That's really important. Um, uh, what... I mean, I, I assume, so you're still doing some coaching. You're still working with writers. Yeah, you're still people, in- I actually still get a, some calls every so often from people at the Post-Dispatch because the newsroom is smaller and there's less people to go to and they're, um, they got editors trying to do so many more things than we used to have to do. And so I hear from them, and uh, so that makes me feel good, uh, feel relevant, Um and uh, people in the community come to me, and I work with people. The, the thing that I love to do is um, I ghostwrite, essentially. So there are people who come to me, and they'll say, would you look at my material? I need, need help with it and, and in some places. What really makes me mad is I had a sculptor come to me, and she had written a memoir. And it was like all it needed was like a little light copy editing. I said, that's not fair. I just devoted... 40 years of my life to learning the craft and this person can put it together like that. I mean, there are just some geniuses out there. So she didn't need much help. And then there was a financial advisor, an evangelical financial advisor who wanted help with a book on how to um, uh, invest your money in a godly kind of way. Okay. I'm Jewish. I don't know anything about money or math. If I didn't know something. Journalist. Right. (laughs) 
I always said that the, the way to job security in journalism is you're the guy in the newsroom who can do percentages because everybody will come to you. And, and so what was cool for me to do was he, he knew that I could write it for him, and I just had to learn about um, Jesus and uh, – and and to have he was Jewish and to have right and and to have the voice uh, of this man of of an evangelical investment advisor and so um, yeah pulled that off if you can do that you can write about almost anything right <laughs> um, when we were trading thoughts about this episode we, one of the things you mentioned was how much the one on one relationship is at the heart of coaching right. Um, so talk a little bit about that. I mean, that's away from a particular story. It's about building some bonds with people. Right, right. You know, so many, so many uh, the, one of the reasons why people will come to me is um, there's a, um, uh, the, the transa- it's so transactional these days with editors. It's like, we're, we got a story. What are you going to do? What are you going to have it? How long is it going to be? And, um and then uh, when you turn it in, they, they might rip it apart. You sh- take the time to have lunch with your reporters and to find out what their aspirations are, where they want to go, how do they get from how they want to get from here to there. Some people want to be uh, the next Lane to Gregory, and some people want to be uh, something else. Uh, and so, if you know uh, what they want out of life, you know what their story is, essentially their narrative then you can, uh, whatever it is that you're suggesting or advising, you can make that dovetail with where, where they want to go. And so they're a lot more susceptible to taking whatever advice you may be sharing with them. And, of course, we're doing this advice in a very sort of indirect way. Uh, so that's, yeah, know your reporters. Be friends with your reporters. Somebody's told me you should be your best reporter's best friend and your worst reporter's worst enemy. But I, I would focus on the best friend part because I think they're – uh, everybody's beset these days. It's really hard to be a journalist. And you disarm them because they're not used to editors who actually care beyond the transactional, I think. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah. just getting the story ready for the next yeah, day. Right. Yeah, right. Well, like, I mean, you understand the uh, why that is uh, because they're, they're under a tremendous, uh, these editors are under a tremendous amount of pressure these days to get the stuff up. And now we didn't have the, uh, uh, I, was, I left the Post-Dispatch 14 years ago. We didn't have the 24-hour news site. I mean, to get something up really fast. And I don't even know how your editing process works with your tweets and your, you know, all that stuff that you have to get out there. Does even anybody even look at it before it gets out there? And I don't know what your systems are for that, your process. But um, so, you know, recognize the editor's a lot of pres- under a lot of pressure, and the editor's need training. The one thing that, tell me about your experience, and we have a minute, Maria. When I was made an editor, my instructions were, go sit at this desk up here, and when you're done with the story, send it to this desk. Okay? That was the entire training that I got. And remember, I hadn't been to journalism school. They just thought, oh, he's a pretty good writer. He might make a good editor. Did you get any? On a- I was a reporter on a Friday. I was an editor on a Monday. <laughs> and the only thing my new my boss said to me was, she turned to me and she said, you know, you can't be friends with those guys anymore. <laughs> and these were these were some of my best friends yes. in the world, you know, yeah. like, and, and I thought, well, that just sounds really kind of insane. Like, what, I'm supposed to stop talking to them now? Like, 
but uh, you know, yeah, so I mean, yeah, that crazy. was it. That was I the mean, extent well, of my you editing. You know, it's training. like okay, uh, Mister uh, 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 Medical Student, uh, here's a scalpel and go do brain surgery. You know, I mean, there's got to be more training. And of course, this paper has created the Pointer Institute, right? Or is it the other way around? I, we created them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so if there's any place that would should be able to get that. It would be it's this, still, this place. It's still the way it is, I think, yeah. industry-wide, though. You know, you get a promotion, and, and, and people assume that the same skill sets translate. And, they and you know, it's just a different job. It's oh, a different, right. you know. And I got so much great training at Pointer. Forget about the wordsmithing, the managing people. You, When you're an editor, you are also a manager. And when I came up in this newsroom, there were a lot of decorated people. They'd won Pulitzer Prizes and so on and so forth. They had no idea how to manage people. And uh, so I, again, uh, you, I was self-taught uh, on a lot of these things. And I was lucky enough that they had the money to send me a few pointer things. And then I would do these writer's workshops, and I'd sit in, and I'd listen to how people did it. And... Uh, you know, uh, writing for story, John Franklin's book? Okay, my first foray in the narrative was I had a story and I had John Franklin's book and I set it up on a stand like uh, you do with a cookbook. And I said, oh, okay, now I'm to the point of insight. And I read how he did it and then I went over to my uh, story and I kind of massaged it and did it that way. I'm sure it was clunky, but it was a start. And what the funny thing was, it was a little bit like you take the souffle out of the oven and people go crazy over it. It was my first story that really got a big reaction because it was a narrative. It was a big beginning, a middle, and the end. We had no narrative in the Post-Dispatch, uh, really, to any extent, except by accident, uh, up to that point. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I got all these. I think by then there were there were emails. There weren't. There wasn't. You know, there wasn't anything that went viral. Right. But it was like I got ten times bigger response to writing this narrative, and I thought. I'm on to something. Yeah. All right. On that note, we're going to. Uh, um, if you have a question for Dick or for Lane, and or you'd like to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W R I T E L A N E at tampabay.com. If you want to hire Dick, we can put you in touch with him. So <laughs> right. just let us know. And join us next week on Wednesday morning for another podcast. This podcast was produced by Monica Herndon. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.